data-driven podcast, an I Hear Everything production. In this podcast, we explore how to transform your company and career through data-driven decision-making. Want to become a data storytelling aficionado? Then sit back, relax, and get ready to unlock the true potential of your data. Here's the host of the Data-Driven Podcast, Dominic Bohan. Welcome to the Data-Driven Podcast, where we dive deep into how to extract more value from your data, helping professionals transform complex data into compelling narratives that drive clear business direction. I'm your host and the co-founder of StoryIQ, Dominic Bohan. And today, we're going to hear about the role of data in recruitment. Joining us is Julian Novak, the founder of JPNB Consulting, which is a recruitment firm specializing in sourcing top talent for online businesses, particularly those operating remotely. They leverage a vast network, have proprietary assessment processes, and a unique hiring method to ensure that businesses secure the best marketers, copywriters, developers, and operators, all with the confidence of a 90-day warranty on all hires. Today, Julian and I are going to discuss the role of data in recruitment. Here's my conversation with Julian, founder of JPNB Consulting. All right, Julian, thanks for joining us today. And to kick things off, can you tell us about how firms like yours and also small businesses and other firms that might be doing their own in-house recruitment can use data to make better decisions about who they hire. Yeah, 100%. So, uh, I mean, first of all, Dom, thanks for inviting me on your podcast. It's really, really pleased to be here. And uh, yeah, thanks for doing me the honors. So recruitment and data, it's actually an interesting uh, topic because if I start like where usually it all starts for everyone in recruitment, um, it's an emotional decision, usually. And anyone who's been involved in recruitment will tell you that. And especially people who think they're good in recruitment will tell you they have a good feeling for people. They have good instinct when it comes to, they know instinctively who's good, who's not good and stuff. And I think it's fair to say that this, this is a road, I mean, it can work. I'm not saying it, it can't work, but it can work. But uh, usually that would be the road for making, yeah, I would say mistakes in recruiting and you wouldn't be able to, you might be able to source a few roles that you know very well for this, but uh, if you start scaling your recruitment and if you start looking for a skill set that you don't necessarily hone yourself, let's just say, for example, you're an e-commerce business owner, just to take an example, and you're looking for a developer, you might not know coding yourself, you might not know development yourself. And then straight away, if you go just on gut, this is where it starts going wrong quite quickly. Um, so now the role of data. So first of all, if you look at data, obviously you, you need to have data in order to use them. So you kind of have to have a bit of a bit of an experience in recruitment, you know, like have done some stuff that have probably gone wrong or gone, gone well or whatever. And then the second thing with this is being able to, which I think is where a lot of people sometimes go wrong, is being able to be quite clear on what you're looking for. Because... Like data can only help you so much, but only if you know what you're looking for. And like, it's really about being quite clear on what KPI will measure, what objective are set to this new recruit, what KPI will measure this, and then how do you translate being good for this KPI, being able to meet the KPI, the objective in, in like attitude, competences, and knowledge. And then only your data will be able to, to help you out. But only if you know what you're doing. You know, I like to compare this with, 
you know, someone who's looking for gold has got a gold detector. You see them sometime at the beach, you know, like when everyone has left and they got their little gold detector and stuff. It's quite interesting because if they didn't have a gold detector, they'd be digging the whole beach to try and find Are gold. Are they looking for gold or just metal more generally? Metal, I think metal, but ultimately, you know, the what they're looking for is gold. They're hoping for the, the pretty 22 years old whose ankle chain in gold broke and then it's in the, it's in the sand and then they find it. But yes, the detector they have is usually a metal detector, you're right. But they just said they had a gold detector, it would be even easier for them. They would probably prefer to have a gold detector, do you know what I mean? And, but if they didn't have anything, they'd be digging the whole beach. And it's the same approach when it comes to recruitment, you know? It's about what you, if you're clear on what you're looking for, very clear on what you're looking for, and you're pretty clear on where, on where to find it, this is where data can really help you. So you need to do that work beforehand in order to leverage the power of data. And then it's a, it's a numbers game, you know, it's, it's the more application you receive, um, the more data you can harvest and the more you can actually hone on, on the skills. I remember I listened to a talk by the, um, was the HR director, the ex-HR director of um, Google. I can't remember his name. Like, I think he was from that Romanian roots or ho- Hungarian roots. I can't remember. He was American, but he had a name like Eastern European, a bit like mine. Um, Laszlo, Laszlo something. Anyway, he was, I think he was saying something like, if you are, if you're recruiting, if your selection is above, I think he was saying like something like two or something insane, like one or two percent, you're not doing well. So you think about you have a role to fill. As in uh, approval rate, like uh, the percentage of applicants that you actually hire. Yes. So you have a role open. You need at least a hundred applicants to be good. If you're below that, you see, you're going to have like more than 1% and this isn't, this isn't a good way to do it. This isn't good. Interesting, isn't it? It is. And so it's something that most of our viewers would be familiar. It's just basically sample size. If you don't have a sufficient sample size, you're not going to be able to get something measurable. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Now, it would be easy for an unscrupulous or uh, low quality, let's say, recruiter or uh, re- in-house recruitment person to simply say, okay, well, I've satisfied that requirement by harvesting low quality applications. I think it's right. I think especially when you're doing like remote recruitment, it's quite easy to harvest a ton of unqualified profile coming from all areas in the world. I would say, and to be quite honest with you, Dom and your listeners, especially poor, low, I would say poorer countries, you know, it's, it's, it's quite easy to harvest a lot of application from these places where people have no chance of even getting the job. And I've seen it done and it's quite, it's quite sad, to be honest with you. But it's obviously like it, when Laszlo was talking about that, he was obviously talking about qualified application, like application where you at least the person will complete all the steps in the application stage and you will at least consider the CV. And you might not move them to the final assessment stage and stuff. But at least the internal recruiter will have at least the consideration and maybe not an interview, but at least like look at the CV, consider it, and it it could be a good fit. And it's a sort of CV you will at least keep in a database somewhere. Do you think like, hey, it doesn't quite match 100%, but I'll keep it because it could match something else we have in the future. Gotcha. So could I, I'm almost mapping it to the sort of process you use to qualify leads in sales where you say, okay, yes. we've got a lead. Yes. Now we've got a marketing qualified lead that at least fits some criteria and has a plausible chance of converting. Yes. 
as opposed yes. to we sometimes get uh, inquiries on our website that are pure spam. And so if I'm managing a recruiter, outsourced or insourced, would it be reasonable to say, okay, we need applications, we need 100 applications that fit some predefined criteria. So they must have this level of education, they must provide sensible answers to some pre-screening questions and so forth. Are we able to, to take the example that we went through together when we worked? Are you comfortable with that? Absolutely. So for those on the yes. podcast, Julian and I have worked together. I have used Julian as a recruiter for Story IQ. He has been fantastic to work with. And as long as we don't mention the names of any individuals, we can share a real example today. Yeah. So for example, when we were looking for your sales, your, your head of sales, VP of sales, actually it is, um, you, you remember we went through a phase of qualification when we talked to quite a few people who had worked in larger organizations than yours. And I remember you saying they have great profile, they're very interesting, but I'm just concerned that the size... No, that was more for the marketing role. It's for the marketing role specifically where they had come from large organization and you were not quite comfortable with having someone who had managed much larger budgets and much larger resources and not had that sort of like startup vibe in their kind of like culture and potentially experience. So these people typically were very qualified, would have been like someone else in your shoes would have probably considered them and maybe even hired them. It was just that level of details that weren't quite right. But as an internal recruiter, let's just say you were an internal recruiter for this, you would have kept these profiles 100%. And maybe when you would have hired the right person coming from a small organization and stuff as they saw, fast forward two or three years and you're looking for maybe someone to go even above that person on a more strategic level and stuff. These are the profile you would have maybe gone back to and said, hey, I don't know, I'm just giving an example. You know, Frederick, we've talked about two or three years ago, blah, blah, blah. Um, would be good to re-engage with you and stuff. So these kind of profile were still like more than okay to consider in our process because they fit all of the criteria. It was just one small criteria. And this is where also like you understand like the 1% thing, because if you're ready to be that selective and think, hey, no, this guy has worked for organization larger than 50 people. I'm not quite comfortable. That's extremely, and that's a good thing, but it is extremely selective. And this is how you actually hone your 1% selection or even, even below kind of thing. Yes. <laughs> now, maybe... Uh... The way that we did that process was perhaps less than ideal from my end in that we learned in real time through the applications that came in, we refined what we were looking for. Now, presumably a more ideal scenario is you define exactly what you're looking for up front, but to what extent can it be suitable to say, look, I only have this level of resolution about what I want. And I actually need to see what's out there in the market to refine a more precise description of what I want. So that's a very interesting question. And I hate doing this, like, but it, it, it's kind of true to be honest. Like, when you work with a recruiter, more like, a, like what we do, for example, more headhunting, I know like, when I work with someone like you that we're going to need to show you profile for you to make a decision because the number of profile I'm going to send you would start informing your decision and you will start like going through them and imagining working with them and you will start giving me feedback and there's this iterative process that goes through. That's normal because your company 
even though it's extremely successful, is still quite young. And there's a lot of roles which you've never filled before. Um, so there is no data to work on. There is no experience to draw from. Therefore, you have to go through the iterative process. There's no other way. Like right? it would be folly to think that for a very first time for a company, how many people do you employ? Like 20 people, a bit less maybe? 30, 30 people. So it would be crazy to think a company of 30 people who's six, seven years old could hire their first VP of marketing or VP of sales without a level of iterations and seeing profile and thinking about it. And, and especially the way you guys are quite collaborative, you know, like discussing with your, with your partner, discussing with your, with your top people in the business and everyone coming to an agreement. And that process of discussing, exchanging, confronting opinions is ultimately what, in a lot of cases for business of this size, going through these first top hires, unless you're promoting internally, which is a different story, you cannot bypass this. You can't. You have to. And you have to be ready to work with a recruiter who's happy and patient to do that. I mean, I'm quite happy to do it myself. And I actually enjoy that sort of like, because there's an element of also consulting. It's not just chucking profiles at you and then you do whatever you do with it. It's like there's an element of consulting and, and going together on the journey. But yeah, you, you, you can't bypass this. It's not possible. And even, to be honest, like when you think about, I don't know, let's just say Nestle um, hiring the next CEO, they will go through that process. They have to. So in a sense, uh, gathering data, often qualitative data in real time from the market. Yes. And as a recruiter, and I'm talking here more to like internal recruiter or external recruiters, it's like you're also gathering data from your clients and or your stakeholder and listening to what they're saying and iterating on the profile you're sending them. So a lot of the process is collecting qualitative data from things like CVs, from discussions with uh, a hiring manager and so forth. Tell us a bit more about where we can use quantitative and structured data in the recruitment process. In terms of? For example, data on market salaries or uh, data sets about the performance of characteristics, for example, let's say like education level or years of experience and uh, to what extent they predict success in a particular role. So I think like the first data of that source you will, you will try and harvest or at least create, I mean, I always do it, is having a feel for the size of the talent pool available. So if you say to me, I need someone who went to a major university, who's already working in a startup, having worked in a large corporations before, and who has at least experience in um, data and education, I could, I would quickly, not quickly, but I would, I would come up with a, a reasonable idea of how many people fit that description. And that is your very first starting point. Whenever you recruit for specific, like, person, with spe- specific skill sets and stuff, it's like, how many people am I talking about? And that will inform as well. Then after that, you can look at salaries and stuff and have a bit of an idea of, you know, how much you know, people make and stuff. But the size of the pool will tell you a lot about, you know, what kind of leverage you're going to have when it comes to salary, what kind of, yeah, efforts you're going to have to make to attract the right person and also how long the process is going to be. Because with all the best food in the world, you know, if you have like, let's say 20 to 30 people to work with, (laughs) 
that's going to take some time to build a connection, convince them, because that person is going to have to probably leave a role to join you. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, you're looking at a longer process. The, the, the size of talent pool is one of the most important data when it comes to uh, like high-end recruitment like we did. You know, it's very important to have a, a good sound idea of how many people we're talking about. Yeah, that's really valuable. That's something that often hasn't been top of mind for me, where I'm like, well, these people exist. Let's go and find them. And so whatever your talent... How many? Yes. And whatever that talent pool is, how many would we reasonably expect are open to a, a role change at this point in time. Now, do you have any kind of heuristics or ideas around, let's say I want a particular role and you estimate the size of the talent pool that could do that role in the locations I'm open to is 100 people. Of those 100, how many of them, even if we've got a compelling sort of uh, financial offer, would typically be willing to jump? It's very difficult. It, it really depends on the on the type of role. And for example, I can tell you 100%, that's from experience. Um, and I I do, I, I do have data to back it up if I need it. If I was really questioned on this, I would, I would actually have data to back it up. Sales, sales roles um, are less likely to jump than marketing roles, for example, because of the way the, the commission, especially in the US works, you know, they build their commission once they've built a commission, they're comfortable with a product, they're comfortable with an offer, and they can actually find the right businesses and stuff, and they know how and it flows, and they're a good environment. They have much less interest in jumping than someone in marketing, especially as it's bizarre, but internal progression in marketing is harder, I think, than sales. For, I don't know for what reason and stuff. I don't know about marketing, but... Could it be that it's easier to tangibly prove your value in sales? So it's like, here's what I delivered. Give me a promotion. 100%. And there's also in B2B, especially, a, a bias towards sales. Like, it's often you hear in businesses, oh, sales is the lifeblood of the business. Nothing happened without sales. Um, the guy who closes the deal, even though probably the marketing team who generated the lead, who harvested the lead and done a lot of work to qualify, to nurture the lead and all that. But the guy who closes it and signed the contract is a hero. Always, always. And so there is a strong bias towards strong salespeople, 100%, 100%. And uh, especially in B2B, marketing is always, number one, it's not as glamorous as um, B2C when you're in marketing. And uh, I do find that it's, it's, yeah, it's much easier to attract marketing people to marketing talent to, to jump to a really nice opportunity. Sales, they're much more rigorous in their assessment and uh, they're always a little bit colder to, to jump out. And it's the same with um, developers, like technical people who code, you know, um, they're always a little bit more cautious, I would say. And probably this is maybe a bias that I have, but uh, I've done quite a lot of technical roles as well. And uh, I do find that they are a little bit less career hungry than sales or marketing people as well. So they will sometimes be quite happy and then they earn quite a lot of money because of the way the way tech roles, you know, and, and talent put and stuff. So if they're comfortable in an environment, they're usually quite happy to stay for a long time. So... Yeah, the 100 people, it depends on the role. It depends on what we're doing. It depends on the industry. Some industries are much more prone to moving around and stuff. And it's more in the culture of this specific industry. Some are more, I'd say, traditional and, and want to stay for a long time and stuff. Um, 
So if I was to look at this pool of 100 people in New York for a particular role that we were doing together, the quickest way, to be honest, is to contact these 100 people and have a chat. Okay. Any rough, rough idea of even just, just more broadly, maybe, to, maybe a different way of framing it, is at any given time for any role, what percentage of people just won't talk to a recruiter if you reach out to them? Like you just can't make any... Uh, 10%. Traction, okay. 10%. 10% of people are going to be outraged at the idea that the recruiter has <laughs> find their personal yeah. details mm-hmm. or even mm-hmm. ping them on LinkedIn and sending them an opportunity. This is just an outrageous idea for some people. Right. I mean, I'm usually flattered if, if someone's reached out and thought I might be useful. I do often ignore them. So sorry. <laughs> you know, I, I might just not even send a reply, but uh, I'm not going to be upset. It's like, <laughs> this is interesting. So it's actually quite a tip for people who are in internal recruitment. So I'm sending that email and obviously I'm tracking the opening rate of the email. Okay. And I'm usually sending emails so that it's, so the way to, if you're going to send email to people's work address, which are the usually the, the easiest to harvest, okay? So if you're going to email Dom on his, on his email address at StoryIQ and you want to get Dom to be your next CEO in your company because he's a rising talent, you send that email so that it arrives in Dom's in- inbox between 6 o'clock in the morning to 8 o'clock in the morning so that it's one of the first email he sees when he's, getting up, he's showered, he's breakfast, he's taking his phone on the way to, to the office and he's going through his email and he's seeing one of the top one is going to be. Now, if Dom opened this email between, I would say, 8 to 9.30, so, so one of the first emails, if he actually opened it, that means there's an interest. So even if he doesn't reply, from the time he opens it, I know if it's worth trying to phone him or not. And if I don't get replies from people like this, actually, it's a, it's an interesting thing because one of the candidates I submitted to you, but you didn't go through, I'm not going to say his name, but uh, it was from one of your competitors. And I approached him just like that. I sent him a first email. He didn't reply, but I saw he opened it at, I think, 9.15 or something like this. So I thought, well, that's interesting. I sent him another one, opened it again, same time, but didn't reply. And then I found his phone number and I phoned him. And then I got him through the process just like that. So it's quite interesting, like how many people, I always look at the people who are saying, who are replying to me and saying, it is absolutely disgusting that you contacted me for this thing. I'm not interested and you shouldn't harvest my data and how dare you. And I will, I will send your email to some sort of authorities that you're prosecuted and and probably even, you know, go to prison. So there's there's people like this, there's about about 10% of them, you know, and yeah, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, the police haven't come knocking on your door yet, presumably. I'm concerned because there's a big four by four with black windows at that, 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 you know. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, so yeah, about 10%. Interestingly, with like technical roles, like developers and stuff like that, it's it's higher. They do tend to be a bit more protective of their privacy and stuff like this. But then the rest is they don't reply or they don't engage with you doesn't mean they're not interested. It's how you do it as well. That's so important. It's how you do it and how persistent you are. You'd be surprised, like the, you know, sometimes people reply at the fourth or fifth email and they actually end up going through all the process. So yeah, it's in terms of data as well, there's a, there's a data I like to, there's a number I like to look at is my conversion rate on my approaches. And this also is 
quite an important piece to know how engaging you are and how attractive you are as a recruiter and as a company recruiting for talent. If I'm looking at these 100 people in this, in this talent pool, how many are going to reply to me directly, straight on, bam, is like, this is the people who are looking for a new job, you know, hands down. I usually have 10, so on 100, 10 to 15, they're hungry for a promotion, they're bored where they're working, it's not going right, they're hearing about redundancies, whatever the reason, they are ready to jump. Doesn't mean they're bad or anything. They're just in a situation, or maybe they have, I don't know, a girlfriend in another city and you're coming from that city. And you, so there's, there's, there's reason that they want to jump. Okay, great. But the next trench, which is always difficult, but it's how attractive we are. And that's a very, very, uh, if you want to measure like efficiency in recruitment, that's a really important one is how attractive we are, how engaging we are, how persistent we are, how, how good we are, to be honest, at attracting talent. How many of them are going to engage with us? How many can we drive, attract to get to that conversation level and stuff? And then how many will drop out of the process because of whatever the reason? Maybe the salary wasn't attractive enough. Maybe they didn't feel like we are the right company. Maybe we think we're too small, whatever. That also is an important data to understand how attractive we are as a whole to, to talents. Okay, that wraps up this episode of the Data Driven Podcast. Thanks to Julian founder of JPNB Consulting for joining us today. In part two of this interview, which we'll publish tomorrow, Julian and I are going to discuss building a data-driven recruitment funnel. If you can't wait until our next episode and would like to learn more about Julian, you can find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes or visit his company website at jpnbconsulting.com. Just one link in our show notes that I want to tell you about. If you didn't get a chance to take notes while listening to this podcast, head over to datadrivenpod.com where we have summaries of all our episodes and contact information for our guests. And if you want to share your most compelling narratives with our audience of data storytellers, you can apply to be a guest speaker on the Data Driven Podcast. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. Our handle is StoryIQ on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or you can contact me directly. My handle is at BohanDominic on Twitter. If you haven't already subscribed yet and want a steady stream of data-driven brilliance in your podcast feed, we're publishing multiple episodes every week. So hit that subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow. Okay, that's all for today. But remember that when it comes to data, less is more.